President and venal houseplant Joe Biden delivered his State of the Union address this week, a 45-minute speech that lasted between seven and eight hours, depending on how closely you were paying attention. For those of you who missed the address because you had something better to do, like picking your nose or wondering how many C's there are in Raccoon for no discernible reason, The Daily Wire has compiled a transcript of the address condensed into a single lifetime, followed by simple bullet point takeaways to help you pretend you were listening. President Biden said, quote, My fellow Merconians, we gather today while the brave Uranians from Urania, where all that important uranium comes from, are under attack by those other people, the ones with the furry hats who sold Hillary all the baloney about Russian collusion with Trump, so the great patriots of our news media could spread the lies throughout the land, causing division and paralysis in the U.S. while the Russians were building up their military so they could invade Urania. My heart goes out to the heroic Uranian leader who reminds me of myself because he's a comedian who became a president and I'm a president who became a joke. But we can't just stand by while he and other courageous Uranians from the planet Uranus, a planet that always makes me laugh a little when I say it out loud, we cannot just stand by and watch them risk their lives to defend their country. We must stand by while saying things, and those things must sound very stern indeed if we are to get through this speech without anyone remembering that we're still funding Russia's war machine by buying oil from them, which we could be producing ourselves. So let me sternly say this. We will sanction Russia by blocking all their financial transactions except the ones that fund their war machine by buying oil from which we could be producing ourselves. We will also ban government workers above the level of G11 from having dinner at the Russian Tea Room, unless it's a special occasion, like a birthday or a girl's night out. We will no longer watch movies about Russia, though I am exempting from Russia with love, because that's a great one, and Red Sparrow, because of the Jennifer Lawrence nude scene. We will also no longer use the word Russian, but will simply say I am walking very fast. And of course, we will not wear furry hats unless the temperature drops below 40 degrees or so. Now that I've done nothing about that, let me turn to some other things I'll do nothing about. Crime, that's a big one. We must fund the police. People think we wanted to defund the police, but we really meant to say fund de-police and just got the words backwards. However, just because we're now going to pretend we said something different than we actually said, that doesn't mean the police can go around arresting people simply because they happen to be black and robbing a liquor store. Also, we must remember George Floyd, so the next time a drug addict holds a gun to a pregnant woman's belly while his friends ransack her house, we can build statues to him too. That will help the police a lot. Furthermore, we must say that we're going to secure our borders. That's something people really like to hear. But just because we secure our borders doesn't mean we won't let every fentanyl-dealing, COVID-riddled terrorist enter our country illegally so we can then secretly fly them to the middle of the country where all the people who voted for Trump are. Because Trump was very bad. And I'm proud to say I have reversed many of his policies, like his producing energy so we didn't have to fund the Russian war machine, and his preventing the Iranians from getting nuclear weapons so they couldn't invade other countries like all the rest of our enemies, which was just unfair. And negotiating peace in the Middle East, which Trump only did to make himself look like a great president by doing great things while he was president. So by golly, I put an end to it. In conclusion, let me say this. The stake in the onions are strong. I mean the stand on my bunions. I mean the state stowed of confusion. I mean the state of the union. That's it. The state of the union is strong. It must be. Otherwise, the union couldn't have survived what I've done to it. Unquote.
President Biden ended the speech by shouting, go get him, so that Nancy Pelosi led Democrats into the street where they chased after a random homeless man because they weren't sure why the president shouted that, but didn't want him to look like a blithering idiot who just shouts things for no reason. Our three takeaways from the speech were one, holy crap, two, oh no, and three, mushu pork. That's really more of a takeout than a takeaway, but I feel like Chinese because at least they know how to run a country. I just wish it wasn't ours. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray. Oh, hooray. All right, we are back laughing our way through the end of the world as we know it. (laughs) At least it's going to take a lot of laughter to get through this. Uh, In the wake of Biden's shockingly dishonest State of the Union, we're going to talk about all the different ways our president is a lying knucklehead. Uh, Plus, we've got Peter Schweitzer, who has written a tremendous book called Red-Handed about Chinese influence among our elites. Go also, please, to the Zondervan website, the publisher Zondervan, and you can read the introduction to my book, The Truth and Beauty. I talked to the publishers yesterday. They are so happy with the fact that you've been showing up to pre-order the book. When you pre-order the book, that tells the publisher that they need to print more books, and that's really helpful so we don't run out of books. Uh, And also, of course, it, it feeds into, we're trying trying to put the book on a list, and the way it gets on a list is if all of your pre-orders are counted that first day, and that really helps us uh, get on the list. So The Truth and Beauty, I think, look at look at the introduction. They have the introduction online at the Zondervan website, and you will see that it's not something, it's something you're going to like. It is something you're going to like. It is about a different way of looking at the gospel that, so that the gospel will put joy into your heart, which is what it is there to do. Uh, Also, you want to subscribe to our podcast and give us five stars because that helps us too. And go on YouTube and subscribe there. If you subscribe on YouTube and you leave, this is my personal uh, site there. There's, um, you know, exclusive content there that we don't have on the show, uh, reviews, all kinds of things uh, that you will get if you ring that little bell um, on the site, uh, you'll hear a little ting and that will just continue, uh, probably for the rest of your life. It's really annoying, uh, but you will get exclusive content, uh, that no one else can get. Uh, and, um, if you leave a comment there and the comment is hateful and cruel, uh, and insults minorities and possibly women, uh, you know, then we will read that on the show because you know, it just fits in with everything else we are saying. Uh, let me see. We have a comment today. I will find this comment here. Yes, it's from Phobos at the gate of E3M1. I have no idea what that means, but he says, uh, or she says, I suspect that on the day of God's wrath, we will get an Andrew Claven show helping us laugh through the apocalypse. That's true. That show has already been pre-recorded uh, because I, of course, will have been taken away in the rapture. So nobody is going to do anything about inflation. It's just going to keep going, and we see it more than ever in the grocery store. Even though grocery prices feel like they've doubled, Good Ranchers prices have stayed low and affordable. Once you subscribe to Good Ranchers, your price never goes up. Your best price is locked in for life. Shop Good Ranchers for all your beef, chicken, and seafood needs. Good Ranchers only sells 100% American meat from local farms, 
and ranches. They have signature steak burgers and Wagyu burgers that are packed full of flavor. Their pre-trimmed and pre-marinated chicken breasts are absolutely delicious and so easy to prepare. I had some of that steak for lunch yesterday. It was great. Plus, their packaging makes it easy to cook what you want and save the rest, which keeps you from wasting anything. Get your $30 discount on prime steaks and better than organic chicken today. Go to www.goodranchers.com slash Clavin to save on the quality you've been looking for. Good Ranchers takes the guesswork out of the grocery store by sourcing everything from local farms and shipping it to your door. Use my code Clavin and enjoy your box of 100% American meat and your 30 bucks savings. Order now to combat inflation with Good Ranchers American meat delivered. But you got to know how to spell Clavin. Ha 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 ha. It's K-L-A. V-A-N, there are no E's. There are no E's in It is an amazing thing, and I've talked about this a little bit before, but it is an amazing thing if you live a religious life and you look on the sacred books and the gospels and you go to church and you listen to sermons. Amazing thing how often, how often the things that you read and the things that you hear uh, feed directly into what you're thinking about and sometimes solve problems for you, sometimes answer questions that you're asking yourself. There is a subject that I have been wanting to talk about for weeks, uh, you know, trying to find a way to put it into words. And last Sunday I went to church and the priest gave a wonderful uh, sermon. I really like this priest because he talks about the gospel, which you think would be what most priests do, but it's not, uh, but he does. And he quoted Samuel Johnson, who's not in the gospel, but possibly should have been. And Samuel Johnson said this thing, which is an amazing quote. It's so profound. He says, he who makes a beast of himself gets rid of the pain of being a man. He who makes a beast of himself gets rid of the pain of being a man. In other words, the effort to overcome your bestial self, the, what they call in Christianity the flesh, is a good deal. That's a, that's a lot of where your pain comes from. It's a lot of where your conflict, your inner conflict comes. It makes being a human being hard. It makes you feel guilt when you fail. It makes you feel shame when you are less than you think you should be. Uh, it makes you suffer the agony of self-restraint, not always getting the things that you want, even when you want them very, very much. If some higher motive uh, should should stand in front of them, maybe not getting as much money, maybe not getting the girl you want, maybe not getting the amount of sex you want in your life, whatever it is, do, becoming a man means ceasing to be a beast or rising above your bestiality. And not only that, you know, this, that's, that is the definition of what it means to be human. It is something that only human beings do. It's not something that animals do. They don't strive above their instincts. We do. Uh, we have something else inside us, a soul, a spirit that guides us to do that. And there's a wonderful line that just comes to mind thinking about that. Uh, if you've ever seen the famous play, Our Town by Thornton Wilder, 1938 play about, it's a kind of a nostalgic play about small town America at the turn of the last century, around 1900. Uh, and it has this... Um, narrator who kind of shares down-home wisdom throughout the play. And at the end of the play, he's looking up at the night sky, and he says, scholars haven't settled the matter yet, but they seem to think there are no living things up there in space, just chalk or fire. Only this one, Earth, is straining away, straining away all the time to make something, to make something of itself. The strain's so bad that every 16 hours, everybody lies down and gets a rest. And so, it, you know, it's a wonderful thought that here in this immensity of space, it's all chalk and fire, but here on Earth, people are trying to become something better than they are. And it's tiring, and you have, we have to sleep eight hours a day uh, to get over it because we feel all these things, guilt and shame. Now, 
It sometimes seems that the things that we do to overcome our bestiality are exactly the sources of our struggles with one another. So if we have faith, uh, if we have a culture that we love, if we have freedom, uh, if we have things that powerful people want to take away from us, um, if we have sexual restraints, and if we have a a, a way of treating women uh, that keeps them protected and makes sure their rights are protected both as human beings and as women, uh, there are going to be people who want to take that away, and and we get into battles about that, and sometimes it leads to war. And War is bad. You will never hear me say that war is a good thing. You will never hear me uh, pound my fist and say, yeah, we're going to war because I know that war is a horrible thing. But, you know, after the wars of religion uh, in the in the 17th century, especially the Thirty Years' War, a terrible, terrible war, uh, people sometimes try to get out of war. They get out of the struggle by getting rid of the values that make us human. So, after the Thirty Years' War, it was 1618 to 1648, started as a religious war, became more political over time, but eight million people were killed. The, the middle of Europe was just decimated, the parts that are now Germany, uh, just absolutely destroyed. And it was embarrassing. It was embarrassing that the people of Christ, the people of the God who said, love your neighbor, were killing each other, you know. Uh, this is something that um, Edward Gibbons in his rise and fall Uh, his decline and fall of the Roman Empire, said Christians have inflicted far greater severities on each other than they had experienced from the zeal of infidels. So the Muslim attempt to destroy Europe, which had been going on for decades and decades, wasn't as bad as this... um, as this war. And there's a lot to be said of that. And when the war was over, they started to talk about religious toleration. They had the Peace of Westphalia, which was a couple of uh, treaties in which they said, you know, whatever the prince says the religion is and his principality, that'll be the religion. But the people don't necessarily have to follow that religion. And they said there are some religions, you know, Lutheranism and Calvinism and Catholicism that were allowed and you could choose from those. And they started to have religious toleration. And of course, we all agree about religious toleration, but an idea is not just itself, it's also the thing that it becomes. And one of the things about religion is you start out saying, let's not kill each other over religion. And then you say, well, it's not polite to talk about religion because then you get in arguments and you might wind up fighting. And then ultimately you say, well, if it's not worth arguing about this most important thing in human life, what you think of the of eternity and what you think God wants of you, if it's not worth talking about, is it worth even thinking about? Is it really there? I mean, can I just live my life according to my own rules? So it starts out as religious toleration and it ends up as a default sense that this thing doesn't just matter. And we have used that strategy again and again to avoid war. After World War I, people started talking about uh, nationalism. Let's not have nationalism. That's what caused this terrible, useless, bloody war, which wiped out a generation of young men. So now your nation means nothing. Now your faith means nothing. Then your nation means nothing because you're always trying to avoid these fights. Sexuality, right? Sexuality is powerful. We feel bad about our sexual uh, dysfunctions. We feel bad about the things that we want. They make us feel squirrely inside and weird. And so we start to say, well, it's fine. It's fine. It's, I shouldn't feel ashamed. Let's get rid of that shame by getting rid of the uh, the morality that says this is maybe not the right thing to do. And you wind up with school teachers teaching children uh, how to give, uh, you know, oral sex to each other. I mean, that's really some of the stuff that's going on in our schools. Women and men are not equal. They are not the same. They are very different from one another. Uh, So let's just say that doesn't exist. That doesn't exist. Women and men are exactly the same. And if a woman wants to be a man, a man wants to be a woman, we just get, it's a strategy. It's a strategy to avoid struggle, to avoid shame, to avoid war. Um, and and the, all cultures are equal. That's the other one. All cultures are equal. You know, every culture is exactly morally the same, and you're a bigot if you say it's not, you know. 
a lot of people now are saying, for instance, that it's it's wrong that the Ukrainian refugees, the people running away from Putin's war in the Ukraine, are being treated differently than, say, refugees from Yemen or from Syria were treated, where people didn't want that. So in order to think that, in order to think, and you're a bigot if you think that, you should look very carefully at yourself. I'm hearing this in all kinds of op-eds. I'm seeing it. Now, you really need to be an ignorant, uh, self-righteous buffoon to say something like that. So let's listen to Alexandria uh, Occasional Cortex, because she will, uh, she'll say it. How the world treats Ukraine should be, and Ukrainian refugees, should be how we are treating all refugees in the United States. I mean, especially when you look at such stark just, juxtapositions when, where so many of, uh, of the factors are in common with Syria, for example. The way the world treated Syrian refugees versus the way that the world is greeting Ukrainian refugees is a very stark contrast. So the idea is that ideas mean nothing, right? If you were raised in a Muslim country, you're going to be exactly the same as if you're raised in a Christian country, that there could no, could not possibly be a group of people with a group of practices and ideas. It's not the people. It's not their race. It's not the color of their skin. That's all garbage. That doesn't mean a thing. It is the ideas and the culture in which they were raised. So, for instance, when you bring massive amounts of Muslim refugees into Germany and they start raping women, you're not supposed to say, oh, you know what? You can't do that. And why can't you do it? Well, you can't do it because we're a Christian country. We're a country formed by Christianity, not a country uh, formed by certain Islamic beliefs that make it look like our women are prostitutes because they're not covering themselves up. You know, you're not supposed to say that. So it's all, everything is the same. It's only these ideas. It's only holding, it's only make, passing judgment. It's only saying, having morals. It's only having values that is causing the struggle. And that's where you get stuff like the song Imagine by John Lennon. Imagine, John Lennon. John Lennon. Imagine there's no religion, no countries, no possessions, and then the world would live as one. It's these ideas, the, the pain of being a man instead of being a beast is what really separates us, is what really causes our uh, dysfunction. But the funny thing is, the funny thing is, when you get rid of those ideas, we don't all live as one. The world doesn't become peaceful. What happens is the bad ideas win. When women can be groomed by rape by Muslim rape gangs in Britain, the women start covering their heads and start converting to Islam to be safe. They start trying to be safe. If you go into the UN and you treat all the countries as if they were morally equal, you wind up with an equal right, a human rights council that includes China and Algeria and Congo and Cuba and Pakistan and all these terrible countries that have that really don't, uh, you know. Uh, tolerate human rights at all, that don't give people human rights at all, because when you don't pay attention to ideas, we don't all become one, the worst ideas win. That's that's just how it works. You know, there's there's a wonderful poem that I'm sure you've heard quoted a million times by William Butler Yeats, the poem The Second Coming. And it begins like this. It begins, turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. And here's the line you always hear, the best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Well, we always quote that because why, you know, but why does that happen? Well, think about that falcon, the gyre that he's turning in is a big circle, and it gets wider and wider because he can't hear the falconer. And who's the falconer? The falconer is that voice inside us, that voice of reason, that voice of humanity, that voice of the spirit that says, no, don't just be a bird. Train yourself, train yourself to do the right thing. Train yourself to keep within limits, to keep within the limits of morality and your values. 
once the falcon can hear the falconer, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. And that is exactly what happens. You know, the same ideas that are in Lenin's Imagine, if we could just get rid of religion, just get rid of countries, just get rid of possessions, everything would be good, are also looked at in a movie, uh, an old 1950s movie called Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And you probably saw the one with Donald Sutherland, but the old one, you know, it's, it's about the same thing. It's about these plants that come from outer space and they reproduce your body and they take over your mind, except drained of your humanity, right? And they just destroy you. And there's a wonderful scene in this. Kevin McCarthy plays the lead and he's trying to defend himself and the chief alien comes to him and says, no, you're, you're going to really like uh, being an alien. You're, you're going to like it. And here's a little bit of that scene. There's no need for love. No emotion. Then you have no feelings. Only the instinct to survive. You can't love or be loved, am I right? You say it as if it were terrible. Believe me, it isn't. You've been in love before. It didn't last. It never does. Love, desire, ambition, faith. Without them, life's so simple. Believe me. I don't want any part of it. You're forgetting something, Miles. What's that? You have no choice. So that that's the real John Lennon. That's the real Imagine. Imagine that, you know. Uh, John Stuart Mill said, War is an ugly thing, but it's not the ugliest of things. A man who has nothing which he is willing to fight for, nothing which he cares more about than he does about his personal safety, is a miserable creature who has no chance of being free unless he's made and kept free by the exertions of better men than himself. Listen, I am never going to tell you that we have to rush to war. I am not telling you that we should be rushing to war in Ukraine, anything but... What I'm saying is that if we don't defend our values beforehand, we're going to ultimately have to defend them on the battlefield. If we don't defend them with our policies, if we don't defend them with our energy supplies, if we don't defend them by putting aside our fantasies and actually dealing with the real world, eventually we are going to fight, find ourselves in a shooting war. We will. Not, nobody wants that war, and certainly not me. Nobody wants to feel guilt and shame. Nobody wants to argue over religion, governance, and culture. You know, we all want to be tol tolerant, but by abandoning our faith, by abandoning our values, our moral sense, we get rid of the pain of being men, but we become beasts. And if beasts, if we become beasts, we will become slaves, and slavery is a fate worse than war. You know, my wife has been out of town, so I've been all alone in the house with no one to protect me, except, of course, my nine millimeter but also Ring alarms. You know about Ring Video Doorbell by now, but something you may not know, Ring makes an alarm. It's true, it makes an alarm, and it's an award-winning home security system with available professional monitoring. Best of all, you can easily install it yourself. This stuff, Ring stuff is really easy to put in. Go to ring.com slash Clavin, browse through all of the sensors that will detect motion on any house or apartment. You will get notified right on my phone, when, right on your phone. You won't get notified on my phone, you'll get notified on your phone whenever anything is detected. It's more than just security. You can add sensors that help protect your home from flood, freeze, and fire too. If anything happens, professional monitoring will call you and can request emergency services. Ring is really easy to install. It makes you feel safe. You can talk to anybody on your phone. They have an award-winning alarm. Now go to ring.com forward slash Clavin to get a great deal on a Ring Alarm home security kit today. That's ring.com forward slash Clavin, but you got to know how to spell Clavin because if anyone comes to your door and knows how to spell Clavin, you know you're in trouble. Set off that alarm. So Olaf Scholz, who is the chancellor of Germany, made an amazing speech to his parliament, the Bundestag, 
And I want to highlight it for a minute because I want to compare it to the speech of our president and show you a, a, a genuine difference. I mean, it, it, you know, Angela Merkel was praised forever as this great chancellor of Germany, and I just thought she was terrible. I thought she basically, when the big moments came, she failed almost every single time. And Olaf Scholz looked at this invasion, Putin's invasion of the Ukraine, and he made this wonderful speech. Unfortunately, for some reason, he made it in German. I, I don't know why, so it's hard to understand. So I will just read you some of the stuff that he said. But he took, he understood that this was a wake-up call in the literal sense of waking Europe up from its dream that the world would live as one if they would just give up their values and just give up their defenses and just basically turn everything into a, a trading post, which was kind of the American way. And he says, he says, the 24th of February, 2022, when this war begins, marks a watershed in the history of our continent. Okay, now this is, you know, this is the chancellor of Germany. So he's, he knows he's talking to a country, you got to understand, that is burdened by this horrific war guilt that wants nothing to do with war. They, they understand that they committed one of the greatest atrocities in all of human history, right there in their own hometown. And so they understand that this is a dangerous thing to say. And when he starts to say, he says, with the attack on Ukraine, the Russian president Putin has started a war of aggression and cold blood for one reason alone, the freedom of the Ukrainian people calls his own oppressive regime into question. This is inhumane. Now, this is so important. Some of our right-wingers here should be listening to this as well. That is ultimately, ultimately why he did it. Yes, there are ties, there are emotional ties between Ukraine and Russia. There are things about the you know, sphere of influence, but basically their striving after Western freedom threatens his authoritarian regime and he's not going to have it. And he also has imperial ambitions. So, the Chancellor of Germany understands that this changes the way they look at the world because it is the intrusion of reality on their dreams, right? And he starts to say, what are we going to do? He says, well, first, we're going to start supplying Ukraine with weapons for the country's defenses. We're going to turn on all these big sanctions. Uh, but there's no point in having these sanctions if we don't have a big military. And this is something very tough to talk about in Germany for the reasons I just said. And he says, we have got to start rebuilding our military, uh, and we're going to start putting in more money into NATO. He's going to do what Trump was nagging him to do. I think they're supposed to put in 2%. I think he says we're going to do 3%. He says we're going to uh, have a, a special fund um, that will provide a, sum of, a, a one-off sum of 100 billion euro uh, for the military. That's twice their actual military budget. So he's really going to build that up and he's going to increase energy production. Suddenly this silly Green New Deal stuff, Greta Thunberg, they're listening to this mentally unstable teenager as Knowles once called her and was flogged for it, but that's what she is. And they and she says, oh, I don't like nuclear weapons, nuclear energy. And so they shut down the cleanest, most productive uh, plants they have for no reason, for no reason. Nuclear energy is safe, it's clean, uh, you know, and, and this is something, so they're bringing some of these back online. He's making a change because the situation was not what they were telling themselves it was. Now, how many times have you had to do that in your own life? Oh, I was in love with someone, but it turned out that they were unfaithful. Or, oh, I thought I would like this job, but this is not what I want to do. Or, oh, I thought my morals were good, but now I find out I'm weak in certain places. And you make a change. If you don't make a change, your life just follows the same path it's on, and down the, that hill you go. The Chancellor of Germany 
made a change. Now compare this to Biden's State of the Union and his actions, right? Before the State of the Union, uh, he was actually briefed on the situation in Ukraine by Kamala Harris, the vice president. Ukraine is a country in Europe. It exists next to another country called Russia. Russia is a bigger country. Russia is a powerful country. Russia decided to invade a smaller country called Ukraine. So basically that's wrong. <laughs> so Biden said, uh, okay, I think I understand that. I think I understand. He went on and made this speech and he starts off his speech like this, which is, you know, just class. Most of the time they start the State of the Union with uh, national domestic uh, issues, but he started out like this. Let each of us, if you're able to stand, stand and send an unmistakable signal to the world of Ukraine. Thank you. Yes. We, the United States of America, stand with the Ukrainian people. So, so that's that's what they're going to do, right? Germany is going to increase its military. It's going to change their attitude toward the military. It's going to increase their oil production. But we're going to stand up and salute the Ukraine. But what are we really going to do? Well, White House spokeswoman Jen Psaki still says they'll do Jack Diddley Pasquat. She was asked about the uh, pipeline here in our country. They gave they said it was okay for them, the Russians, to build a pipeline into Europe. But pipelines in our country are no good. And she was asked about that. This is what she said. The Keystone Pipeline has never been operational. It would take years for that to have any impact. I know a number of members of Congress have suggested that, but that is a proposed solution that has no relationship or would have no impact on what the problem is. We hear all agree is an issue. So during that, those years where it would you know, take to bring down prices, as you're saying, we should just continue to buy Russian oil? Well, again, Jackie, I think you're familiar with a number of steps we've taken, a historic release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Well, we can, well, let me finish. What we can do over time, and what this is all a reminder of in the President's view, is our need to reduce our reliance on oil. The Europeans need to do that. We need to do that. If we do more to invest in clean energy, more to invest in other sources of, of energy, that's exactly what we can do to prevent this uh, from happening in the future. So reality is going to have absolutely no effect on this. What the Democrat Party is going to do is each person is going to be issued one of those little whirly gigs you get at the state fair. (laughs) You're going to stand in the wind until we have enough wind energy to do absolutely nothing. They are doing nothing. There's not no talk of military spending, no talk of saying, you know what? The Russians have been building up their military. The Chinese are building up their navy. We've got to get on the ball here because this is a dangerous world where an authority, you know, the Russians and the Chinese are now acting in concert. We now know this, that China asked Putin not to invade while the Olympics were going on. So while we were, you know, supposedly enjoying the Olympics without any touch of patriotism because the coverage never mentioned that it was better for an American to win. Uh, We had American people playing for China. It's all one thing. There's no difference. culture, all cultures are alike. What's the difference? You know, the only difference is, of course, most of those athletes would have been aborted because they were women. They would have been aborted had they grown up in China, but they didn't grow up. They grew up here and they lived and now they get to fight for China. And and meanwhile, Putin was saying, yeah, I'll wait till the Olympics are over before I made it. I, I believe that China is probably regretting being such good friends with Putin right now. I could be wrong because they, they had an opportunity to stand forward and make him stop and say, we are now the peacemakers and make us look ridiculous. They really missed an opportunity and they haven't done anything. But, you know, that's that's the way they are going. But anyway, he so they're not doing anything. They're not doing anything. Now, you know, 
We need a stronger defense. The chancellor of Germany is right. We have to start spending money on our defense. And that's a hard thing to do. We're so in debt. But, you know, some of that debt are in programs that really hurt us, uh, that really hurt the, the people they're supposed to help. I've talked about that a lot. The Great Society, which I believe has just decimated uh, the black progress into the middle class. Um, you know, some people on the right are saying our sanctions are wrong, uh, that that the sanctions hurt the poor, and it's true they hurt the poor. It's terrible. Uh, but but you ha but again, you're not you're making that John Lennon mistake. You think that if all those things are taken away, no one will get hurt, but that's not true. Uh, people are being hurt already. People are being killed. They're now shelling uh, civilians. They're going in there. They're saying they're going to execute people. The Russians are saying they're going to execute people in the public squares. This is uh, they are going to level this country. I mean, I know, I know that the Ukrainians are fighting bravely. I respect and admire them, but the Russian war machine is big. It's funded by uh, their oil that they're selling to Europe and to us. And, uh, and they're going to cr crush them. And so the suffering is already there. And only by making them pariahs can we avoid the hot war that we're all trying to avoid because they have nuclear weapons. And now they're saying, by the way, that Russia has brokered for us, has brokered with the Iranians a nuclear deal. You know, that's going to work out really, really well. And some people in the Democrat Party are saying, well, that'll bring down the price of oil. Bringing down the price of oil is us producing more oil instead of pretending that some computer model is going to destroy us all in eight years, which is a lie. That's not going to happen. You know, Listen, I am all for uh, environmental action. I'm all for studying how we can have cleaner energy. I'm just not for pretending. I'm not for pretending that we already have the energy that will power us while Russia is doing what it's doing and will continue. He's not going to stop. It will continue. Let me tell you something. When Ukraine is crushed, and I, I, I say it like that, I hope I should say if Ukraine is crushed, maybe Ukraine can fight back and, and keep this insurgency going. I don't know. But it will be forgotten. The atrocities will be forgotten. The misery and the, and the destruction will all be forgotten. And Putin will, it'll just go back to normal for a while. And people keep saying, well, he's not going to go into Finland. He's not going to go into Poland. He's not, he wouldn't do that. He wouldn't. Yeah, he, he will. He will. If we do nothing, he will. And if he doesn't, China will. They're, they're every, the whole world is watching this to see what we do, just like they were watching when we fumbled our way out of Afghanistan and made a mess of that. They just, no weakness. You know, there are other people who say we should never have listened to the Ukraine, Ukraine's desire to join NATO, that when we did that, we basically threatened Putin and we put him on his back heels and we made him aggressive. My feeling, I'm a little bit more of an imperialist than that. My feeling is that we shouldn't have offered, uh, you know, discussed it. We weren't going to put Ukraine in NATO. They weren't actually, that wasn't actually on the table. But we shouldn't have discussed it unless we had the oil production to back it up, unless we had the military to make Putin think twice, unless we had the kind of president that Putin feared, as we did for four years. Then, then, yes, we should expand our values. We shouldn't conquer countries. We shouldn't force countries uh, to become what we want them to be. But we should be selling freedom where they are selling, where, where China is selling efficiency and authoritarianism, where Putin is selling, you know, his kind of crazy uh, lies about religion and the Russian empire and all that stuff. We should be selling freedom and we should be selling it hard because if we're not on the move philosophically, they're going to be on the move militarily. The mistake we made was talking about NATO without securing our energy supplies and our military. In Germany, they get it. You know, this is a watershed. This is a watershed. Here, we get nothing, absolutely nothing, not rain, nor sleet, nor snow, nor gloom of night will keep the left from leftism, they will not leave their fantasy. They will not change their minds.
So if you're sitting in your car and it's not going anywhere and you're wishing you could get to the parts store so you could fix the car, you may be wondering why you don't have a date. And the reason you don't have a date is because you're not saying rockauto.com. You say rockauto.com, there'll be women pounding on the door of your car saying, go inside and fix your car and then I'll go out on a date with you. But they want to see that you're smart enough to go to rockauto.com. Also, they want to hear you say that. But they want to know you're smart enough to go to their catalog right online. You don't have to go anywhere. Your car's not running anyway. Their catalog is unique. It's remarkably easy to navigate. You can quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle and choose the brands, specifications, and prices you prefer. And those prices are great. The prices at rockauto.com are always reliably low. They're the same for professionals and do-it-yourselfers. So why spend up to twice as much for the same parts at a store you can't even get to because your car's not running? Use your head and go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Write Clavin, same tone of voice, Clavin in there. How did you hear about us, Box? So they know we sent you. And then just get in your car and drive off on your date. When I talk about the grip that the fantasy of leftism has on the left, this is what made the State of the Union speech genuinely offensive. That's a word I don't actually like to use because everybody's always offended. I'm offended. But it insulted our intelligence. I mean, you know, we have this massive crime problem that went away. And remember, the crime problem has been gone. It's been gone for 20 years and during those 20 years, it was just as easy to get a gun as it is today. It hasn't gotten any easier to get a gun. It was just as easy. So every time you hear it's guns, it's about guns, it's about guns. We know it's not. It's, we have proof that it's not. We stopped it by putting prison people in prison, and we stopped it by uh, holding people accountable in their neighborhoods. That is respectful to do to people. It is respectful to hold them accountable. It means we're treating them as humans instead of beasts. It means we're saying there are things that human beings do, and you are one of us, and we are going to treat you like that and put you in prison when you act like beasts. But instead, we have this incredible crime problem, and we have heard all this stuff about defunding the police, and during the State of the Union, uh, you know, I was sitting next to Candace Owen. I thought she was going to fly through the roof. She was so ticked off. And I, I was, it's just insulting. This is what he said. We should all agree the answer is not to defund the police. Right. It's to fund the police. <laughs> fund them. Fund them. Oh, oh, I thought, you know, it's funny because when I was, when I was listening to what Democrats were saying before, I heard them say stuff like this. Suck it up. Defunding the police has to happen. We need to defund the police. Mayor Eric Garcetti saying, take some of the money from policing, about $150 million. I applaud Eric Garcetti for doing what he's done. Not only do we need to disinvest for in police, but we need to completely dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department. So yes, defund your butts. Defund you. Yes, I support the reallocation of resources. Uh, from NYPD. We will be moving funding from the NYPD to youth initiatives and social services. They are talking about reducing uh, the allocation of resources to that department. And I think every single city in this country ought to be thinking about the same thing. Yes, I support the defund movement. I'm for responsible reallocation of resources. And defund the police. I think you do all those other things. You don't need all the money that's going to the police department. So yeah, I mean, the spirit of it, I, I, I do support that. <laughs> so all those people standing and cheering, some of whom you just heard, were lying. 
Every single one of them. And Biden was lying. He's not going to do anything to stand against the left wing of his party because the left wing is on the march. And he is a man who follows. He's not a man who leads. He never has been. Not once. Not once has he ever been a leader. He has always followed the mainstream of his party or where the uh, power in his party was. Listen, the problem that we have is that black people commit a lot of crimes. It's not that all black people do it. In fact, it's a minority. It's a it's a, the criminal minority. But black people commit something like 50% of the violent crimes in this country. Now, I do not believe that that is a racial matter. I don't believe they do it because they're black. I believe they do it because the programs that were put in place increased fatherlessness. If you just take race out of the picture, you become your IQ goes up immediately if you stop talking about race. If you walk into a prison and look in, a, in the behind the bars and say, well, gee, everybody here is brown or black. There must be bigotry. If you just erase that from your mind, you see every one of those people doesn't have a father. That's what you see. You see these are broken homes because we paid people to have money, uh, children out of wedlock, because we told people they could have money if they didn't work. We did not treat them like human beings. We did not hold them to the same uh, standards, the same human standards that we hold ourselves. And nobody on the Democrat Party wants to get rid of that great society because that money funds their power, that money are the giveaways that they can give away for votes. People behave in the way that you treat them. And the Democrats have been the worst thing that ever happened to black Americans from slavery days to this very day that we're talking now. It's offensive. It's offensive to have uh, him say, fund the police when he doesn't mean it. Here's another. Here was another moment that I just thought was it was unbelievable that they thought we were going to participate in their fantasy life. If we are to advance liberty and justice, we need to secure our border and fix the immigration system. Provide a pathway to citizenship for dreamers, those with temporary status, farm workers, essential workers. Revise our laws so businesses have workers they need and families don't wait decades to reunite fix our borders while hundreds of thousands of people are flooding through there, you know, constantly and being secretly, secretly funneled out into the Midwest, into places where they think that they can turn the tide of elections once they get rid of all those nasty uh, racist laws that say you have to have identification when you vote. You know, Last week, I played this cut of John Kerry saying that he hoped that Putin it was, wasn't too busy murdering people uh, to take care of the climate. And I thought, well, there's a guy, you got to hand it to John Kerry. He's got that, that big, long face, and he's stuck inside his head. He's not letting reality get in there at all. But then I saw this thing on CBS where they thought they're covering the war within the war. What is the war? It's the miserable fate of transgender people in the Ukraine. This is the thing we have to be thinking about while Russia is running tanks over their cities, reducing them to rubble. And here's, here is a transgender person, a guy who thinks he's a girl, telling it how terrible it is in Ukraine. This is not a very rainbow-friendly place. So lives for trans people are very bleak here. If you have male gender in your passport, they will not uh, let you go abroad. They will not uh, uh, let you through. A war within a war, truly, truly. Every noise from outside is a warning sign. It was hell living as a trans person in, in Kiev, in Ukraine. We feel invisible, truly. Like we're not people, like we're not human. It's truly how we feel.
So basically, they're trying. Everybody's trying to get out of Ukraine because of the Russians are coming. The Russians are coming, and they're saying women and children first. And this guy's like, you know, I'm a woman. They're saying, well, on your passport, it says you're a man. Oh, it's hell. It's hell living here. It's hell. Oh, this is the thing. Used to, it used to be embarrassing to dress up a woman to get off the Titanic, but not anymore. Now it's a, now it's an identity. Uh, you know, before the speech, before uh, the State of the Union. There was an interview with our, our president in which he said this. I think one of the significant things we're going to find 10 years from now is a phenomenal negative psychological impact that COVID has had on the public psyche. And so you have an awful lot of people who are uh, notwithstanding the fact that, uh, that uh, things have gotten so much better for them economically uh, that they are thinking, but how do you get up in the morning feeling happy? Happy that everything's all right. <laughs> you're great. You're happy. You just don't know it. If You know that old song, if you're happy and you know it, uh, clap your hands. If you're happy and you don't know it, it's the Biden administration. That's, that's what's going on. He, he's actually trying to tell us that things are fine when they're not. He's actually trying to tell us that we should be happy and it's our fault that we're not. It's a psychological disturbance because they cannot get rid of this fantasy. I mean, listen, we live in a country where Bernie Sanders, a mentally ill person who has been believing in the same thing for 50 years, for 50, 60 years, the same thing as murder after murder happened, oppression after oppression happened, country after country's economy was destroyed. No, I remain, I happen to believe that I should be a socialist. You know, that's, that's sickness. That's not, that's not a noble. That is not idealistic. That is an, an actual mental sickness. And what they're telling us is, no, no, it's everybody else. It's everybody else. It's not the person who thinks he's a woman when he has a penis who's mentally ill. It's everybody else. It is everybody else. They are clinging to that fantasy. It is absolutely amazing. Uh, you know, Saturday Night Live did this routine, and some people on the right were thrilled to see it because they started to discuss the fact that maybe masks don't do anything. Maybe they shouldn't have been so uh, gung-ho about the vaccines to the point where they were being prejudiced about people. People were losing their jobs. Here's a little bit of the uh, SNL team in this routine. While I am so personally relieved that I'm vaccinated. Careful. <laughs> I, I sometimes wonder if... Um, if other people who are hesitant, careful, <laughs> might not have like a valid what? <laughs> not valid, but but understandable. Not tonight. Help me. I think what she means is maybe sometimes we are a little overzealous when we condemn. Oh no. <laughs> I just think that if people are actually losing their jobs... Oh, no. Careful, girl. Look, vaccines save lives. Fact. Okay, they stop the hospitals from being overrun. Fact. Where are you up to? But did I have to dump my oldest friend just because he didn't get... No, 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 booster? See, that would be funny if they'd done it two years ago. And it would be funny if it meant that they were going to change, but they're not. 
it's the same thing with the Biden administration. They're not going to let go of their fantasies that putting a piece of cloth over your mouth is going to keep you safe from a pandemic. It's not the way life works, but they are not going to change. And they're never going to say, oh, you know, the Democrats told us that the Democrats were wrong. Maybe I should start looking at Republicans. None of that is going to happen. So what difference does it make? What difference does it make if you suddenly say defund the police, if, if you suddenly say fund the police, if you're not going to do it? What difference does it make if you're not going to change your belief? You know, I think a lot about this to me, hilarious moment when I watched The Witcher and I came in and said, I hate to see women in medieval sword fights because in real life they'd be wiped out like that. They'd be fighting somebody twice their size, just as well trained as they were, and he would kill them instantaneously. It would not The fight wouldn't even last for 10 seconds. And people were furious. They're still furious. I'm still getting letters. People still go on Twitter and say, oh, what a, what a sexist thing. It's a fantasy. It's a fantasy. It was so obvious that what I said was true. It was so plain that what I said was true, that they couldn't, that they got angry at me just for saying it. And that's what we're seeing now, you know? It's the one thing you can say about reality is it's real. It is real. And reality about being a human being is that we have to find moral truth, even if it hurts and even if it makes us feel guilty and ashamed, and even if it sometimes leads to conflict, we have to stand for moral truth because otherwise we become beasts. This John Lennon song, this fantasy of perfectibility, you know, that if we just give up all the things that matter, all the things that make us human, everything is going to be fine. That is a fantasy. There is no silver lining. There is no perfectible human being in this world. that We have to wait. We have to wait until we see the face of God. But the left will not change. They are doubling down on failure. They are going to keep doing this, and they're going to keep telling us it's us. They're going to keep telling us that they're going to live in this fantasy world, and if only we will believe in that fantasy, the fantasy will become reality. In some ways, we should thank this gangster Putin for at least showing us the face of reality, the face of human reality, because he is the face of human reality. And if we don't stand above that, if we don't try to rise above that, if we don't fight with that, even when it's painful to do it, we will become like beasts. So after every show I do at The Daily Wire, I like to go off by myself and weep quietly because I didn't use ZipRecruiter, and that's why everything is so much chaos here. If you want to hire well, you need ZipRecruiter because ZipRecruiter is a hiring device that keeps learning. That's what keeps you sharp. ZipRecruiter has AI that is always learning, so if you're hiring, their AI gets better and faster at finding the right candidates for all of your roles. Right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin. ZipRecruiter uses its powerful technology to find and match the right candidates up with your job. Then it proactively presents these candidates to you. You can easily review these recommended candidates and invite your top choices to apply for your job, which encourages them to apply faster. Now you can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire if you know how to spell Clavin. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no E's in Clavin. I just make it look this easy. So during this war uh, in Ukraine, the President Zelensky, Volodymyr Zelensky, gave a press conference and he said this. We don't have nuclear arms, we don't have oil and gas to fill the world with, but we have our people, we have our land, and for us, that is our gold. That's what we're fighting for. Now, I, I couldn't help noticing an interesting thing about this. Everybody who hears this uh, clip and hears what he said is moved by it, is deeply moved, and our respect for him goes up, our respect for the Ukrainian people goes up, he's 
He's making Putin look bad. I mean, if nothing else, I don't know how long they can hold out and I don't know how uh, well they can become insurgents, but he's making Putin, this is a moral loss for Putin and that does count for something. I'm not going to, you know, just uh, um, minimize that. That's an important thing. But that's patriotism. We have our people. We have our country. And that's what we're fighting for. We may not have oil. We may not have riches. We may not have all of these things. But we have our people and we have our country. And that's patriotism. And it makes us sit up and it makes us take notice. And we have this natural respect for it. And yet, and yet, we are not supposed to have it. Americans are not supposed to have it. Have it. We don't even really know what it is. I remember after 9-11... People were saying, oh, everybody's winning, wearing these, uh, you know, American flag pins. And uh, Katie Couric, I remember, complained about the whole, this is a quote, the whole culture of wearing flags on our lapel and saying we when referring to the United States. Patriotism is not something that intellectuals like. Patriotism, intellectuals tend not to like anything that makes, the, that dignifies the common people, that elevates the common people. Uh, you know, a patriot, an ordinary guy who's a patriot who goes to battle uh, to fight for his country is elevated. Uh, an ordinary person is elevated in wisdom when he believes in Jesus Christ. I see this all the time. I talk to people who are just simple people who just do simple things, but you talk to them, uh, but they believe in Christ and suddenly they have great wisdom and that, that I, you know, anybody who is, no matter how sophisticated, can learn from. Intellectuals don't like that. They're proud of their brains and they want to make sure that they have them. So they are not really big on uh, on patriotism. And that's how you get ignorami like AOC and the rest of the left telling us there's no problem with endless immigration of any kind of people coming in uh, and you're racist if you think there is. All, and all I say is, look, I, I, am, I love living in a multi-ethnic country. I got to tell you, I, I do. I love living in a country with people of different colors. I think it's one of the achievements of America. But it is an achievement not based on the color. It's not, it doesn't come from diversity. Diversity is a byproduct of sameness. It's a byproduct of all of us believing in the same values, the values that define us of, as Americans, which are the values of limited government responsible to the people and the people ruling and individual people being free. That's how we became a multi-ethnic country because people were proud to come to America. And when the left attacks patriotism, you know that line from the, the Princess Bride, they use that word, but I don't think they know what it actually means. You know, I got uh, the new copy of the Claremont Review, one of the very few journals I subscribe to. It's one of my favorite, and it has a, an essay by the editor, Charles Kessler, just a brilliant man. He's been on the show, a uh, bright guy and a good guy, and, uh, and he reminded me of Reagan's farewell address. And Reagan talked about, uh, in, in his farewell address, the end of his presidency, he talked about the resurgence in patriotism that had come along during his presidency. And here's what he said. Those of us who are over 35 or so years of age grew up in a different America. We were taught very directly what it means to be an American. And we absorbed almost in the air a love of country and an appreciation of its institutions. If you didn't get these things from your family, you got them from the neighborhood, from the father down the street who fought in Korea, or the family who lost someone at Anzio. Or you could get a sense of patriotism from school, and if all else failed, you could get a sense of patriotism from the popular culture. The movies celebrated democratic values and implicitly reinforced the idea that America was special. TV was like that, too, through the mid-60s. But now we're about to enter the 90s, and some things have changed. Younger parents aren't sure that an unambivalent appreciation of America is the right thing to teach modern children. And as for those who create the popular culture, 
well-grounded patriotism is no longer the style. You know, so Reagan was talking about the culture uh, all that uh, time ago. And this is what I started talking about when I came back from England and I saw the change and I saw what had gone on. And after 9-11, I've told this story a million times, but still David Letterman came on and said, why do these people hate us? And I remember shouting at the television set saying, who cares why they hate us? They hate us because they they have an evil, wicked philosophy and we are free people. They hate us for being the good things that we are. Plenty of people hate you for being right. Plenty of people hate you for doing what's right. I mean, that's, that's how you get things like the crucifixion. That's how you get that is the the world is not really a place that naturally accepts truth that naturally accepts freedom so he was talking about the culture and he was talking about patriotic movies i remember talking to ben about this once you know patriotic movies were not what you think they were they were not, you know, yeah, during the World War II especially, there were patriotic movies with, you know, Jimmy Cagney waving the flag. It's a grand old flag playing George M. Cohen. And there were, you know, Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney and singing America songs. But that was during wartime. It was propaganda. It was open propaganda. It was to cheer people up. Their husbands and brothers and sons were away at war. Uh, we were fighting a worldwide conflict against a very evil uh, enemy, you know, it was to cheer people. It was a, it was cheerleading. But that's not what most of the movies have been. Art is culture critical. This is one of the reasons that conservatives are so bad at it. Uh, we don't criticize the leftist culture. We don't come out and say, you know what, maybe we should have some virtue because the minute we do it, uh, we get attacked and we're not hip anymore and people don't want to do it. Um, and so, but when you go back and look, Art was always culture critical. Even the golden age of the movies, the art was culture critical. It talked about things that that go wrong in a country. So I just go back, 1933, it's the Depression. Uh, Busby Berkeley, there's a musical, uh, the uh, Gold Diggers of 1933. Busby Berkeley was, was the master of the great big dance number. Uh, but this is the, the song Forgotten Man in which, uh, is it Joan Blondell? I think it is Joan Blondell. Uh, sings this, yeah, sings this famous song where she goes up to a guy because he's living on the street and he's poor and he's broke and she gives him a cigarette and then she says this because this is after World War One, right? I don't know if he deserves a bit of sympathy. Forget your sympathy. That's all right with me. I was satisfied to drift along from day to day till they came and took my man away. Remember my forgotten man? You put a rifle in his hand. You sent him far away. You shouted, hip hooray! But look at him today. So, you know, they were saying, we've got to take care of these guys who are out in the street. We've got to do something about them. Uh, you know, after the war, after we found out about the Holocaust, uh, there were movie after movie after movie exploring American racism. We looked at Hitlerian racism and started to examine ourselves. There was Gentleman's Agreement, Crossfire. These things came out during the war. Uh, the Boy with the Green Hair, Showboat about anti-black racism, Imitation of Life. A lot of movies started out uh, about uh, uh, anti-black racism as well. I remember as a kid watching a film called Broken Arrow where Jimmy Stewart, one of the most conservative people in Hollywood. I mean, they talk about John Wayne, but Jimmy Stewart was a rock-ribbed conservative. He was in a film about the Indians. He plays a scout. He falls in love with an Apache woman, uh, and the film acknowledges that the Apache she committed savagery. It acknowledges that, but it also points out that the uh, the Europeans, the whites, whatever you want to call them, they were also uh, um, committing savagery. Here's a scene where they ask 
Jimmy Stewart, if he will serve as a scout for the army, and he says no, and a guy challenges him, whose side do you want? I'm not looking for trouble, but if you don't fight against them, you're with them, and I've got a right to say that. Who says so? What's your name? Ben Slade. I own a ranch only a mile out from Fort Grant. Even so, the Apaches burned my house last month. My wife was inside. You almost got my boy, too. Seems to me a white man like you would want to see that sort of thing stopped. That's right, anybody would. Then why don't you join the colonel's staff? That's private business, Slade. War ain't private business. Not when they're murdering our women and kids. Uh, at Big Creek, we murdered Indian women and kids. Cochise started this, and oh, any now, man... Oh, now, just let's get the facts straight here. Cochise didn't start this war. A snooty little lieutenant fresh out of the east started it. He flew a flag of truce, which Cochise honored, and then he hanged Cochise's brother and five others under the flag. Oh, you hear all sorts of stories. You want to know why I didn't kill that Apache boy? Well, for the same reason I wouldn't kill your boy or scout for the army. I'm sick and tired of all this killing. Besides, who asked us out here in the first place? Who asked us out here in the first place? I mean, this is, this is nuanced stuff, and it always was. It, you know, it was examining ourselves, examining our flaws, examining our history in the light of what we had just seen in the death camps, which we had nothing to do with, right? We didn't, uh, we didn't create the death camps. We destroyed the death camps or helped, the, you know, we and the Russians uh, destroyed the death camps. But but we thought, well, you know, that's an evil that we've now seen. Do we have this in our own hearts? And we started to examine ourselves about it. And like I said, Jimmy Stewart, one of the most conservative guys out there in Hollywood, a true patriot, an abs- a guy who f- was an absolute hero in World War II. He was an, a, an airman, and he was one of the genuine uh, Hollywood heroes in World War II, making that movie, examining the things that, we, that we've done wrong, but with—, with Nuance, saying, yeah, the the Indians are committing atrocities, we're committing atrocities, we have to find a way to work this out. And he's in love with this Indian woman, uh, so he's basically the bridge between them. It's It's only when the culture as a whole, the elite culture as a whole, starts to attack patriotism, starts to attack love of country, that people start to make more jingoistic music, m- movies. That's where you get John Wayne making, striking back against what he felt was this cultural trend, and he was right. He made this film called The Alamo. Now, The Alamo came out in 1960. Wayne had been trying to get it made for, movie, uh, for years. It was a love project for him. It was corny. In 1960, I saw it when it came out. It was corny in 1960 when it came out. And one of the things that always cracked me up was when I went to visit the Alamo, uh, there's an actual mural inside of John Wayne, not of David Crockett. I mean, it's classic Americana, right? We don't put up a monument to Davy Crockett. We put it up to John Wayne playing Davy Crockett. But Wayne makes a famous speech in this about what it means to be a republic. He wants there to be a republic of Texas. And uh, and he makes a speech as Davy, he plays Davy Crockett. He's talking to Colonel Travis, and this is what he says. Republic. I like the sound of the word. Means people can live free, talk free, go or come, buy or sell, be drunk or sober, however they choose. Some words give you a feeling. Republic is one of those words that makes me tighten the throat. Same tightness a man gets when his baby takes his first step or his first baby shaves and makes his first sound like a man. Some words can give you a feeling that make your heart warm. Republic is one of those words. So 15 years later, Robert Redford makes a great thriller called um, Three Days of the Condor. 
think it's Sidney Pollack directed it. And he plays a, a CAI spy who's being hunted, and it turns out America is involved in some really bad stuff. And he meets an assassin uh, who's been following him. Max Van Saito plays him. And the he says, I'm Redford says, I'm gonna go back to New York. And Max Van Saito says, the Americans will kill you. Your own people will kill you if you go back. And Redford says, well, what do I do? And they have this really tremendous exchange. You seem to understand it all so well. What would you suggest? Personally, I prefer Europe. Europe? Yes. Well, the fact is, what I do is not a bad occupation. Someone is always willing to pay. I would find it tiring. Oh, no. It's quite restful. It's almost peaceful. No need to believe in either side or any side. There is no cause. There's only yourself. The belief is in your own precision. I was born in the United States, Chauvera. I miss it when I'm away too long. I pity. I don't think so. Great scene, a great scene. This is an assassin basically saying what John Lennon said, you know, no beliefs, no religion, no possession, just my own efficiency, and he's a killer. And Redford says, I was born here, I miss it when I'm gone, and when the assassin says that's a pity, Redford's character says, I don't think so. And what he's saying is it is natural to love your country, but you love your country for reasons, right? And when we examine our flaws, see, this is what the left misunderstands. When we examine our flaws, it's not to destroy our country. It's to make our country into what it's supposed to be. We do it out of love in the same way we examine our own flaws. But to, to strike out against that natural feeling of belonging, of love for your country, is to strike out at something noble and good and central to the human character, and it is destructive. And I just wanna end with this famous poem by Sir Walter Scott, uh, just a little bit of it. He says, breathes there a man with soul so dead who never to himself hath said, this is my own, my native land, whose heart hath never within him burned his home, his footsteps he hath turned from wandering on a foreign strand. If such there breathe, go mark him well. For him, no minstrel rapture swell. Nobody's gonna write songs about him. High though his titles, proud his name, boundless his wealth as wish can claim, despite those titles, power and pelf, which is filthy wealth, the wretch, concentered all in self, living shall forfeit fair renown and doubly dying shall go down to the vile dust from whence he sprung, unwept, unhonored, and unsung. Our spirit speaks to us. It speaks to us of love of country. It speaks to us of love of God. It speaks to us of our responsibilities and the things that we have to do to become men instead of beasts. And one of them is love our country for the good thing it is and preserve our country for the good thing it is. Even as we examine ourselves, the left has lost that plot. It has lost that story, but we have to bring it back. If you thought The Daily Wire was going to take a break from bringing you new awesome content, and I know you did, you just have a dishonest face, but think again, we're adding new content on what seems like a weekly basis and we're so excited to share our latest edition with you. Get ready for March 10th, the premiere of our latest film, The Hyperions. It doesn't follow the same old Hollywood prescribed formula. It's a film that stands entirely on its own and I hear it is excellent. Check out this trailer. Good day, Hyperion Club members. 
We've come for one thing. Our Titan badges. This Titan badge can grant an individual superhuman power. Perhaps it's time for someone else to take on the responsibility. On my way. She's trying to destroy me. All right, that looks different, and I'll be watching it this weekend, and I'll get back to you on it. Uh, it's a, a The Hyperions is a throwback superhero meets dysfunctional family meets quirky criminals. Another one of those. I know you see those all the time. It's 100% worth the stream. We'll be streaming the film once on March 10th for all of YouTube to see. That's the last time we'll be premiering a movie on YouTube. So be sure to head on over to the Daily Wire YouTube channel and set a reminder for the live showing. But after that, you got to be a member to get in on the action. Head to dailywire.com slash subscribe so you don't miss any more of the growing catch of content we have to offer. If you haven't noticed, The Daily Wire does not stop growing, and our latest show, Crane and Company, is just more evidence to back that up. Crane and Company is a daily sports show hosted by former athletes and coaches Jake Crane, Blaine Crane, and David Cohn, and they're joining forces with The Daily Wire to bring you all of the sports you love with none of the woke nonsense attached. When you tune into Crane and Company, you'll be getting in-depth sports analysis, informative interviews, predictions and wagers, and constant live chat engagement with fans. Tune in live at 3 p.m. Eastern and every weekday at dailywire.com or on YouTube. The show is also available anywhere you listen to podcasts and is already jumping the charts on Apple Podcasts. So I highly recommend you go give them a five-star review right now. ESPN won't like it, but we do. So I am reading this book, Red-Handed, How American Elites Get Rich, Helping China Win by Peter Schweizer. Uh, Peter is the president of the Government Accountability Institute, and the book debuted on the at the top of the New York Times bestseller list, and that is not that surprising. This is a deeply researched, deeply, um, you know, wide-scope book about the influence that China has on some of the top people in this country. And it's it's really shocking. Peter, thank you for coming on. Uh, great piece of journalism. I mean, it really is, it's riveting stuff. And uh, uh, as, I, as I was saying before we came on, I wish I could say I enjoy it. I don't quite enjoy it, but it is, <laughs> it's riveting. So so let me, let me begin with, with this. Uh, you know, I've known a lot of businessmen over the years, especially in the 2000s into the 2010, who would travel to China regularly. Uh, with no qualms of conscience, conservative, patriotic guys who were sharing uh, information and technology with them. And kind of the government was saying, this is a good thing to do. What is the difference between that and what is in this book? Well, I think a couple of things. And Andrew, it's great to be on with you. I'm a big fan of your uh, written work over the years. Uh, I, I think a couple of things uh, have changed between what I'm talking about. First is the time that we're talking about. Uh, in my mind, things really changed in China substantially um, when President Xi came to power in 2011-2012. Uh, uh, I think before that, you could sort of argue or make the case or hope that uh, you know through more trade, more technology transfer, China would become more liberal. Uh, when Xi rose to power, that changed everything. It showed that that was a myth, that that was not true, because Xi has taken the country the opposite direction, more repressive, more aggressive, uh, more focused on surpassing the United States than China was before. 
So I, my argument would be it, it was maybe a little more defensible to think that uh, things would turn out well in China 20 years ago. Uh, you cannot make that case in the past 10 years. Uh, anybody who's paying attention knows that. The second, I think, important part of the puzzle, though, is what I'm really focused on in the book is individuals in the United States on Wall Street and in Silicon Valley that aren't just doing trade with China. They're actually engaged in activities that are very directly and specifically helping the Chinese military industrial complex. Uh, now, people could say, well, in China, it's kind of blurred, and it is kind of blurred, but you're talking about people like Bill Gates who are actually investing in specific companies that are known known publicly uh, to be building uh, military weapons related systems for the Chinese military. And that to me takes it to a higher level than somebody who you know, is engaging in commerce with China um, because of you know, labor costs or whatever. China seems, you know, I talk a lot about the fact that there, there aren't that many real big widespread conspiracies in the world, but there are a lot of conspiracies of interest where everybody has the same interests and it's not the interest they say. China seems to be creating those. It seems to be creating a system in which to disentangle yourself from China means to sacrifice your success and your wealth and, and so much. Let's begin. Let's begin by talking about the Bidens. Do we at this point know? I mean, it's it's pretty obvious that Hunter Biden has been influence peddling his whole life. I mean, that seems to be his profession. Do we know now for a fact that Joe Biden is part of this? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's no question in my mind. Um, so in 2018, I first broke the story that Hunter Biden was doing deals in China and and uh, you know places like Russia. And at that time, it wasn't clear. Uh, all we had were corporate records, financial records from China and elsewhere. And we sort of put together the pattern of behavior, showed what Hunter Biden doing, what, what his dad was doing. With the Hunter Biden laptop and with the email collection of one of Hunter Biden's business partners, a guy named Bevan Cooney, who gave us access to his Gmail account, uh, it, there's simply no question anymore. We know for a fact that Joe Biden not only aided and helped Hunter Biden in his overseas business schemes. We also know that Joe Biden is a direct beneficiary of those deals. Uh, when Joe Biden stands up and says, I've never taken a foreign uh, dollar in my life, could be technically true, but it, it's true because he's simply laundering it through his son, Hunter Biden. Uh, the emails show uh, without question that they have commingled finances, they have intermingled, intertwined finances, whatever words you want to use, that Hunter Biden was taking the foreign money, he was paying some of Joe Biden's monthly bills, but he was also paying some of his other bills like renovations on his home in Delaware. So Joe Biden's a beneficiary financially, but we also know that Joe Biden was meeting with Hunter Biden's uh, paymasters overseas. Uh, and he was also meeting with prospective uh, business partners. Uh, these were done in such a way when Joe Biden was vice president of the United States that they were off the books. They didn't appear on the White House visitors logs. But we know for a fact, based on Chinese documents, for example, that those meetings took place. So in my mind, all of the denials by Joe Biden, all the equivocations, all of the changing stories point to the simple fact that this is not a Hunter Biden story anymore. It is a Biden family story with Joe Biden at the center of it. And when Biden gets up and he's running for president and he says to people, you know, come on, folks, they're not going to steal our lunch. These are good folks over there in China. 
Is there any sign to you that this guy has, <laughs> I don't want to use the word awakened because I'm not sure he's ever done that, but like that, that he is now aware that the people who were paying him are bad guys who actually are, have designs on our country? Is, is there any sign to uh, you that he I, has? I, yeah, no, I, that's a great question, Andrew. I mean, I, th- I to my mind, there's no question he's always known to some extent that China is a rival to the United States. Because look, when he was vice president under Barack Obama, uh, Barack Obama's administration uh, had a recalibration, a repositioning of U.S. military forces away from Europe and towards the Asia Pacific region. And there were people in the in the Obama administration that says China is the rising threat we need to be worried about. So Joe Biden was getting those briefings. He knew about those policies, but he never really embraced them. Uh, So he knows that. I think it's also very clear, too, the other uh, interesting revelation that's come out with this new information, the Hunter Biden laptop and the Bevan Thune emails, is, you know, who actually made the deals happen for Hunter Biden in China? Uh, You know, one could have the impression, Andrew, that this was just kind of a, a... you know, Hunter Biden sort of bumped around in Beijing and Shanghai, and these deals just kind of happened because of who his dad was. Uh, if you go back and look, there are basically four Chinese uh, businessmen who made those deals happen for the Biden family, some $31 million. Every single one of those businessmen, I talk about it in detail in the book, have links to the highest levels of Chinese intelligence. So this is not some random event or some low level grifting by the Bidens. This was a concerted effort by Beijing to engage in what they call elite capture, which is to make foreign elites, particularly uh, political elites, beholden to them, dependent upon them financially. Uh, And that's exactly what was going on here. And if they had spent 25 minutes on Google trying to figure out who these guys were in China that were giving them these deals, they would have known who these individuals are. They chose not to do that, or they chose to do it, they knew who they were, and they didn't care. So to my mind, uh, naivete on Joe Biden's part is just simply not uh, something that you can even consider at this point, given the abundance of evidence. We're talking to Peter Schweizer about his book, Red Handed, How American Elites Get Rich, uh, helping China win. And just to be clear, you talk about in the book, some of these guys who are paying uh, Hunter Biden money, which I guess goes to the Biden family, are discussing how they can win a naval battle with us in the China Sea because we have oil wells there that'll blow up and that fire will help them. Uh, so they're, they're, this is serious business. Talk a little bit about what's going on in Congress. I mean, Diane Feinstein knows that she... <laughs> Had a Chinese spy. I'm laughing, but it's not that funny. I mean, she knows she has a Chinese spy in her employ, and nothing, there doesn't seem to be, have been any consequences to that whatsoever. Or am I wrong about that? No, you're right. I mean, this is part of the problem. I mean, this strategy of elite capture that Beijing has, that's the term Chinese intelligence uses, works very effectively because what they basically do is they look at political figures in the United States or New Zealand and Australia and other parts of the world and say, If we can make these people serious money, they will be beholden to us. They will have leverage. Dianne Feinstein's a classic example of it. Uh, She was, for a long period of time, the chairman of the U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee, which means she had access to the highest level secrets in the United States. While she was doing that, 
her husband, uh, Richard Blum, who sad to say recently passed away, uh, was getting mega deals in Beijing from Chinese state uh, backed entities. And that really grew out of the fact that Dianne Feinstein and her husband had a very close personal relationship with Zhang Zemin, who was the premier of China for quite a bit of the time in the 1990s and early 2000s. Uh, and he really opened the doors for them. So if you look at some of the accounts of the deals that Feinstein's husband's got, many of them are first-of-a-kind deals. No other businessman has been given this deal in China, and it helped make them very wealthy. And to show the contrast, uh, Andrew, of, of how bizarre the situation is, at the time she is the chairwoman of the U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee, her husband Richard Blum has a major stake in a Chinese uh, computer tech company called Legend that ends up selling laptops to the U.S. military. God knows how that happens. But it turns out the Marine Corps discovers, surprise, surprise, that these laptops are all bugged. So the spouse of the chairman of the U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee is neck deep in a company selling bugged laptops to the U.S. military. That shows the kind of paradox of what we're talking about here. And Feinstein's not alone. I talk about Nancy Pelosi. Uh, I talk about on the Republican side, uh, Senator Mitch McConnell and, and, and his in-laws, the Chow family. Uh, the Beijing is very opportunistic about this. They don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. If you're willing to play ball and if you're willing to help them on the big things, they don't mind if you critique them for human rights or uh, for the Uyghurs. As long as you help them with the really big things, uh, they are very, very happy. The, the, the translation from the Chinese to the English is what they're looking for is big help with a little bad mouth. And that's what these politicians are essentially giving them. They'll ding them for something like human rights, but they, they basically support giving Beijing unfettered access to our technology and to our capital markets and to our markets to sell their goods. And if you give them those things, they are happy to give you deals to make your and your family very wealthy. You know, to, to stick with the politics for just a minute, you mentioned Mitch McConnell. That was going to be my next question. This is not entirely a partisan thing. I mean, this is something that goes. Is there anybody besides Donald Trump who is willing to call this out? Is there anyone in either party who you find, well, yeah, this is a voice that you can trust who's not in debt to these guys? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, in the last chapter uh, called Fighting Back, uh, I do discuss the fact that there are some Republicans and some uh, Democrats who have been actually really good on China so far. You know, they can always disappoint. Uh, on the Republican side, uh, I talk about uh, Ted Cruz, for example, who's very good. Senator Rick Scott of Florida has been very good. Uh, Rand Paul has been very good in the U.S. Senate. If you look at the Democrat side, I got to say it. I don't agree with him on much of anything. Chuck Schumer has been pretty good on China. In fact, there are times when uh, Trump was really going after Beijing and Chuck Schumer came to his defense. So we, you got to give him credit for that. Uh, also, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, uh, Senator Warner from Virginia, a Democrat. They've all been pretty good on China on these issues. So there are people that are willing uh, to do it. Uh, the problem is, is it's the leadership. Uh, Nancy Pelosi in the House, Mitch McConnell in the Senate. Uh, you've got very senior political figures in both parties uh, who have become very wealthy as a result of Beijing's largesse. 
Uh, and it becomes very hard to overcome that when you're trying to push legislation that I would argue has a lot of bipartisan support on Capitol Hill. Yeah, it's not a partisan issue. I mean, it is a patriotism issue and it's and a money issue, whether you're going to put country in front of your wallet. Let's talk a little bit about Silicon Valley. I mean, Google, I think it was Google used to have the expression, don't be evil. They actually got rid of that. Uh, <laughs> I guess just, just, to be, just in, in the interest of honesty, I guess. Um, <laughs> I mean, how how deep are these guys, the, the stuff we use every day, how deep into China are these guys? Uh, they're very deep. Yeah. Um, and this is probably the most unsettling chapter of the entire book. I mean, I'm not making excuses for politicians who who basically set up, sell out for commercial deals, but these are not people that are particularly wealthy. And, uh, you know, greed gets to them. The question is, why do people like Bill Gates, the co-founders of Google, a guy like Elon Musk, uh, who are worth more than $100 billion each, why are they willing to get into bed with Beijing? Uh, that's the real question. In, in bed, they are. Uh, if you look at Microsoft and Google, for example, uh, they are both sponsoring uh, heavily with money and with talent artificial intelligence research in China, in the research laboratories that are known known to be linked to the Chinese military. We know in other cases that Google scholars who are connected to Google, who are paid by Google, have been involved in research projects that help enhance uh, China's stealth fighter that is gonna be going, God forbid, hope not, but maybe going toe to toe with America's stealth fighter in the skies over the uh, Asia Pacific. Um, so that's, that's known. And the question is, is why are they doing it? They're already fabulously wealthy. And the scary part of it, Andrew, is that many of the Silicon Valley elites, it may be about money, but I think it's more about the fact that they are kind of enamored with what they regard as the efficiency of China's dictatorship. Uh, things get done quickly in China, they talk about. It's so exciting what they can do in infrastructure because it's just, it gets done so quickly. Well, of course, if you don't really believe in civil rights, you don't believe in property rights, you don't have an independent judiciary, you don't have an independent legislative branch, the list can go on and on. Of course, you can be efficient as a dictatorship. And this is the point that Elon Musk has made. Uh, Elon Musk used to be very critical of Beijing in 2015, 2016. More recently, he's become very pro-Beijing, uh, and he has said on podcasts uh, that the Chinese government is more responsive to the needs of the Chinese people than America's government, and he congratulates the Chinese Communist Party uh, on their the anniversary of their birth and, and the things that the CCP has done that's so positive. Um, I think it's helped that Beijing built him a Tesla factory, that they are doing many things to aid uh, the expansion of his company. But again, I don't know that Elon Musk needs the money. I think he is just impressed with how efficient this dictatorship is. Um, and that, to me, in a sense, is even scarier that these corporate elites in Silicon Valley, but also on Wall Street, are, are embracing the notion of the efficiencies of dictatorship. That is not a good place. I think for our corporate titans to be. Yeah, no, this is a, a there's a long history of intellectuals romancing authoritarianism because they see people as numbers instead of as people, and they they forget that efficiency isn't everything. So I, I'm running out of time, but I do want to ask you about the last chapter about fighting back. What, what should we expect? What can we expect from our politicians? How do we get them to see that people who uh, oppress their own people are not the people who should be running the world, and and in fact we are? How do we how do we turn this tide around? 
Well, there's a couple of things we can do personally. Some things that I've had to do as I, as I researched this book that I didn't realize I was involved in. First thing is look at the products you're buying. I mean, if you're buying Chinese uh, tech, technology products made in China, chances are that company is probably linked to the Chinese military. So you are subsidizing a, a company and a country uh, that wants to challenge us militarily for supremacy. Second thing is look at your investment portfolios. I have a 401k. I was shocked to discover that one of the mutual funds I was invested in, that's a global fund, 40% of their holdings are Chinese companies. Mm -hmm. So I sold that mutual fund. So there are very specific things we can do independent of Washington, D.C. that I would encourage people to do that I had to do. Beyond that, I think we need to be willing to shame uh, these corporate executives who say these wonderful things about China. We should do the same thing to our politicians. And it's really important, Andrew, I think, to have a zero tolerance policy. You can't just call out the other side. I mean, I'm a conservative. So, yeah, I want to call out Nancy Pelosi, but I've got to be prepared to call out Mitch McConnell as well, because otherwise, this becomes a partisan issue and we're not going to get any traction anywhere. I still believe there are issues like this that we can unite as Americans. It's an 80-20 issue. Uh, and I think we need to do this. And But that means both sides need to be prepared to call out people on their side that are engaging in this behavior. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the book is Red-Handed, How American Elites Get Rich Helping China Win by Peter Schweizer. As we expect from Peter, it is a really remarkable piece of journalism, uh, a really one-stop uh, one uh, one shopping to find out about this issue. Peter, thanks so much for coming on. I hope you'll come back again. I'd like to talk to you more about this. Absolutely. I really enjoyed it, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot. All right. The Clavenless Week is looming before you. You do not want to have problems going in because you simply won't survive. So it is time, in that case, for the mailbag. Because you can't build a wall high enough to keep out a, 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 a vaccine. The vaccine can stop the spread. Yeah! <laughs> You're president, ladies and gentlemen. All right. From Anonymous... Uh, Lord Claven, a.k.a. Hot Gandalf, I need some advice. I know that you and your son, Spencer, no relation, are very close and that he lives a homosexual lifestyle. He is gay. Uh, can you tell me how you work through that in your life and in your relationship? My daughter, barely dated before college and now nine months away, uh, she has come home and announced she's dating a girl. We raised our kids in a close Christian church with family and friends. She knows that we believe the Bible specifically states that being gay is not the lifestyle God wants for you. A year or so before she left home, she had also confided in me that she's not sure she believes in God. I feel like a complete failure as a parent, especially as a mother. There are so many what-if moments I am thinking back on. I feel like my child has died. All my dreams and efforts for her at a loss. I also am feeling really convicted about continuing to pay for her to be away at college and with this girl, though I realize there will be other gay girls anywhere. You are the one person at Daily Wire. I feel I can really get good advice. I I feel can really give good advice on this topic. Thanks in advance. Uh, yeah, I can give you good advice on this topic. I'm, I'm going to get in trouble and get uh, mail all week long about it, as I always do whenever I touch anywhere near this subject. But I'll give it to you anyway because I am right. <laughs> um, it, listen, first of all, I, you're not a failure, and uh, you know that. You know, put that aside. Put put your your daughter first, and put your relationship with your daughter first. I'm not going to tell you what to believe about homosexuality. You have a, a conviction about this that uh, is is supported uh, by readings of the Bible. And so I think that, um, you know, 
you let's let's just assume that your conviction is your conviction and that you should be comfortable in that conviction. Throughout my life, for reasons I'm not sure of, uh, I, repeatedly, people I have loved and people who are my friends have come to me and told me that they were about to or just had done something really bad, uh, and they were, uh, you know, they were going to marry the wrong person, they were going to cheat on their wives, they were going to do some uh, something dishonest for money. Um, this has happened to me repeatedly. I'm not sure why people choose to tell me these things, but they do, and and I've done the same thing just about every time, which is that I judge whether my words are going to have any make any difference, um, and then I say the words that I think will make a difference. And I would say about three out of four times, people, they either know they're about to do something destructive and stupid and dishonest, uh, or, or they have talked themselves out of believing it, uh, and about three out of four times, they just go ahead and do it uh, helplessly, even if they know it's going to destroy their lives. Um, but every now and again, they listen, and they, you know, I, I, if, if I have particular authority in their lives, they understand why I say what I say, and sometimes they, they turn back. When they go forward, though, do I abandon them? Do I stop being their friend? Do I stop loving them? Do I constantly hector them about the wrong thing that they're doing? No, I don't. I love them. I, I always, I always bet on love for people that I love, um, and I try to love as many people as I can. This is your daughter. This is your daughter. You love her. I understand that she is doing something that you feel is wrong. I'm sure she knows you feel that way about it. I'm sure she already knows. But now it's it's time to love her. And that doesn't look like loving what she's doing. Uh, it doesn't necessarily look like approving of what she's doing. But it does involve not hectoring her constantly, not condemning her, not uh, uh, banning her from your home, not banning her girlfriend from your home. You know, I, I don't want to give you any false, you know, hopes. I know that, that women's sexuality and men's sexuality is very different. A man, by the time he's about 11, knows exactly what turns him on. He may deny it to himself, but he knows what turns him on. Uh, women are much more fluid in their sexuality. Obviously, I'm speaking generally. There's exceptions. But, um, you know, maybe she's exploring. I don't know. But the point is, is that your job is to love her. Your job, you know, if this is a sin before God, it is not a sin against you. It is not something that you have to judge her about. You do, you're not, you're told not to judge her, just to love her. That's all you have to do. And God, God will judge and that may be as it will be. And he, his judgment will be absolutely perfect. His judgment will be absolutely perfect. It will not just look at one aspect of her life. It will look with every fiber of her being and every cell in her body. You do not have any vote in that judgment. You don't have any vote in that judgment. So love her. You know, I mean, that's what you're there for. You're her mother. Uh, she needs your love. She needs somebody who loves her no matter what. Uh, and that's, that's my advice. And, uh, you know, I, I would, if, if my child uh, were, and God forbid this should happen, they were dishonest, which would, would hurt me far more than any uh, relationship, any loving relationship they could be in. But if they were dishonest and criminal, uh, I would still love them. I, you know, I might turn them in if I had to, if I had to prevent harm. Uh, but I would still love them and I would be the first person to visit them uh, in, in prison and I would always be there. You know, I, this is to speak personally for a minute, uh, I sometimes look at my life and I wonder how it has worked out at all. Uh, I have thrown away entire careers simply because I wanted to say what I had to say and be who I wanted to be. Uh, my wife and I frequently joke that we did everything wrong in our courtship and yet our marriage has been an 
miraculous romance. I should be crazy, and yet I'm sane. And I, I know all of this was done by God. None of it was done by me. None of it was my brilliant decisions. Please believe me. I, I guarantee you none of it was my brilliant decisions. But I sometimes ask myself, how did God get in? You know, how did God get into my life? Because you can't force him out. You can bar the way. He will let you do that. He will let you be free and you can bar the way to God. And, that, and I think the only answer I've ever come up with is that I have my one maybe good quality is that I have followed the love always. My love for my wife, my love for my work, my love for my children, my love for my friends, you know. Uh, and I have, some of my friends have turned away from me. Some of them because of what I believe, because of what I think. Some of them have banned me from their lives. But I have not turned away from them, and I have told them they are in a one-way feud. They may not be my friend, but I am their friend, and I will love them. And I have stuck to that policy. And the only thing I can say about that is that is opening the door to God. That is opening the door to God. If you do that, uh, God has a way in. He will find your number, even if you are as bonehead and as slow to think as me, he will find a way in through that path because that is his path because that's who he is. He is not just the one who loves, he is actually love itself who loves, which is a weird mystery, but there it is. So do that and you will not be sorry. Uh, you know, that, there is something I can guarantee you will change your life for the better. Uh, you know, this is, this is God's gift to you, this girl. Uh, and whatever she's going through, whatever she's doing, she needs your love. You don't have to lecture her constantly. She knows what you think. Uh, now just be her mother. Be her mother as you have always been. Uh, welcome her home. Uh, you know, accept her as, as she is going to be. If she does things that you feel are going to be horribly uh, destructive, you can, you can speak to her if you have that relationship, if it's going to help. Uh, but mostly, 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 you gotta, you gotta love her. And so, you know, uh, with Spencer, it's not that he's gay. It's just that he's such a pain in the neck. But, but yeah, I, you know, I, I have always just bet on that possibility, on that possibility of love being a good thing. And that just, it just works. It's just a weird, weird thing. So I went long on that, and I'm not going to have time to answer other questions, but I will keep them on hand, and I will add the ones that uh, some into the next week's questions. You want to be in the mailbag, you got to subscribe. Uh, then go to my site, and there's a little airplane uh, symbol, and you can ask the questions. All my answers are guaranteed 100% correct, especially that last one, and they will change your life. Will they change them for the better? That one will, but maybe not all the time. And now, yes, the Clavenless Week is upon you. Uh, it'll be like crawling over broken glass through a dumpster fire uh, with the sky falling. Uh, will you survive? <laughs> you know, of course not. But some of you might. Some of your children might. Your descendants might. Who knows? And we will be here next Friday with The Andrew Claven Show. I am Andrew Claven. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode and want to spread the word, give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, basically wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, remember to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Walsh Show, and The Michael Knoll Show. Thank you for listening. The Andrew Claven Show is produced by Lisa Bacon, executive producer Jeremy Boring, our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Wadowski. Editor and associate producer, Danny D'Amico. Our audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. Our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. And our production assistant is Jacob Falash. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. 
John Bickley here, Daily Wire Editor-in-Chief. Wake up every morning with our show, Morning Wire, where we bring you all the news that you need to know in 15 minutes or less. Join me and my co-host, Georgia Howe, for daily coverage of all the biggest stories on Morning Wire. Morning Wire. 